today we reach a very significant and dramatic even turning point in Mark's gospel. Uh, we're, we're right in the middle of the book here. This is talk number eight, and we're doing 16, God willing, in total. We're right in the middle of the book, and it's like being in the middle of Rob, I'm going to just throw that away, and you can do it, okay? There we go. This, this part of Mark is like being right in the middle of a huge roller coaster ride. Now, you, you can pay a lot of money to go to Alton Towers and uh, to go on rides like this, better than this, but you can experience this for free here this afternoon at REC. So, bonus, you, you, can, you can enjoy the thrill of the ride. So far in Mark's Gospel... The roller coaster has been climbing and we've been strapped into our seats and you, you know the feeling when you're on a roller coaster and you hear like the chains clicking and you're, you're kind of like climbing up and you, you know what's coming and you're, you're kind of going up so far in Mark he has been slowly and expertly taking us to the top and now we're poised, ready in the middle of this gospel to plunge down the other side. And what a plunge it is. A lot of commentators break the gospel of Mark into three distinct parts. And uh, let's uh, see the next slide here. I just do a little map. Um, the first seven and a half chapters, eight chapters, are based in Galilee where Jesus grew up. And uh, that's in the north of Israel. And from, from chapter 11 to the end of the book is based in Jerusalem. And this little middle section, we're just at the beginning of it today, chapters 8 and 9 and through 10 are really a journey that Jesus makes with his disciples from Galilee to Jerusalem. So these are the three scenes, if you like. Galilee and then a journey and then we'll be in Jerusalem. Go again, Rob. So far, we've been in Galilee, part one. And I think the disciples themselves actually sum up the first part of this book, or this climb up the roller coaster, in chapter four, when they ask, they look at each other, they see Jesus, and they look at each other, and they go, who is this? Who is he? That's the question. Who is this? This is the great question of Mark's gospel. The, that question summarizes, in a sense, the whole book. Who is Jesus? That's the question that Mark's encouraging us to think about. That's the question that Mark's encouraging you to think about. Who is this? So in Galilee, to begin with, Mark's taking us up this roller coaster, building the tension gradually introducing us to Jesus. We've seen Jesus heal the sick with a word, sometimes when the person is not even there at a distance. We've seen Jesus calm stormy weather with a word. We've seen him raise a dead girl to life. We, we've not um, covered it in one of our talks because we're being selective, but if you've read the rest of the chapters, you'll have seen Jesus feed thousands of people with a packed lunch twice. We've heard something of Jesus' radical words 
And we stood amazed with the crowds at his authority. The shock here comes in part three. And Rob, give us another slide there. As we go into Jerusalem, Jesus is not just traveling south in the country to Jerusalem. His whole mission is heading south because he's going there deliberately to be killed by crucifixion. The first half of the book is asking, who is this? The second half of the book is clarifying and asking, why has he come? Why is this great king deliberately walking into failure and weakness? All of the opposition that's slowly been growing, we've seen hints of it already, comes to a horrible climax as the religious authorities put Jesus on trial, find him guilty, and do away with him. The only crown this king gets is a crown of thorns twisted and pressed into his head to make him bleed. There's no throne waiting for Jesus in Jerusalem, only a cross. I've framed things this way deliberately um, to emphasize the fact that we are here at the crux of the story here. This is the turning point in the whole book. We're on the top of the roller coaster with the disciples. We're trying to work out with them what's going on. So part, part two of the book, in a sense, is on the road. This, this is two chapters of Jesus giving on-the-job training to his disciples and effectively changing their perception of who Jesus is and why he's come. I'm sorry about my very scruffy scribble there, but I'm trying to highlight that this is where we are. This is the part of the book that we're in. They travel together south on the road to Jerusalem and Jesus is kind of re-educating his disciples. There are things that they need to unlearn that they thought they knew. And there are things that they could never have even imagined that they now need to factor into their understanding of Jesus. Jesus is preparing them for the traumas to come. And it's almost as if Jesus is gradually opening their eyes to see his true nature. What I want to do this afternoon is just basically walk through two scenes. I would have liked to have done three, but I prepared too much. What a surprise. So, we, yeah, we were going to think about three, but we're just going to curtail it and think about two. So if we're still here an hour from now, you'll be mighty glad that we didn't do three. So I only have two points. Uh, the first is really about blindness, and the second point is really contrasting the blindness of the disciples with the boldness of Jesus. Blindness and boldness. You can ask me afterwards what point three was. So, number one, you see it on the program there, blindness. 
I've entitled this, this is in chapter 8 and verse 22. We, we were going to talk this afternoon about Peter's confession of Jesus being the Messiah, but I'm really distracted by this really strange miracle that Jesus does, healing a blind man. This is the strangest miracle in the whole of all four Gospels. So, in the town of Bethsaida, right on the northern coast of Galilee, I went to Israel, as you know, a couple of years ago, and went to Bethsaida. Um, it, was, it was great, great to feel like you were there in the places where some of these things happen. But right on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, some people bring their friend to Jesus because he's blind. I don't think he was born blind because if he was, he wouldn't have known what a tree looked like. And when, he said, when Jesus says to him later, what can you see? And he says, I see people walking around like trees. So I don't think he was born blind. This man must have fallen ill and he, he suffers with this uh, ailment of, of being blind. His friends bring him to Jesus. And the thing that makes this miracle striking and unique is that it looks like Jesus is having an off day. You kind of feel like Jesus is like, he, he, he has a go and it doesn't quite work. And it, it, it's almost like he's not quite got the power to do it right the first time. It's, it's a very straight, Jesus spits on the man's eyes. We, we could talk about that. And he touches the man and then basically he seems to ask this guy, did it work? <laughs> did it work? And the man says, well, yes and no. I can see, that's great, but people just look like trees walking around. It's a good job he didn't stop there because if he had a chainsaw, people should be looking out because he'd be like, I'll, I'll, I'll have some firewood and he'd be chopping people down. Yes and no, I can see people, but it's not quite right. And Jesus touches his eyes again. And this time his eyes are opened and his sight is perfectly restored. So we have this strange little two-stage miracle. And we have to ask, don't we, why does Mark introduce this here at this point in his narrative? First of all, I want you to notice that this little incident has the ring of authenticity about it. And what I mean by that is this. If you were setting out to make this gospel up, if you were trying to promote this as a lie, if, if you were making this up to impress people, you just wouldn't include this, would you? Because it looks like Jesus has made a mistake and he can't quite do it right. You, it's got the ring of authenticity about it. I think we can also appreciate, can't we, that Jesus, as we've been going up the roller coaster and Mark's been introducing us to Jesus, We've seen so many different cases and incidents of Jesus doing powerful, amazing things. He could tell the stormy weather to be quiet and it obeyed him. He could heal people even at a distance when they weren't there. It is safe to assume that he's not having an off day here. But I think what is clear is that the details are important the reason Jesus does it this way isn't because he couldn't do it right the first time. It's, it's because this is not just a miracle, it's a parable. He's healing this man in a way 
that teaches something. Just look with me at what happens before this man is healed. In chapter 8, Jesus and his friends are in a boat. They're on the Sea of Galilee and they're having a discussion. Jesus has just fed 4,000 people, we're told, and they're in a boat and they've forgotten to go to the shop and, have some, and buy some bread. And Jesus says something very enigmatic to them about the yeast of the Pharisees and they're like, he's telling it off because we haven't got any bread and we forgot to go to the shop. And Jesus corrects them. Verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no breath? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? It's an enigmatic conversation, but the whole theme is they've got eyes, but they can't see. They've got ears, but they've not been listening. And then Jesus comes to Bethsaida and this man comes and he heals him with this bizarre two-stage miracle. Again, I want to highlight that if you were making this up, would you not portray these disciples as heroes? Would you not portray them as quick and sharp and and actually they're quite dull <laughs> and slow. And Jesus says to them in this gospel, do you still not understand? It's like he's groaning at their slowness. I think what this underlines is something about spiritual blindness. And I, I, I want to say this, that when we come to Mark's gospel, we realize we're, we're being taught here that we are all spiritually blind. There's, there's another slide there, Rob, I think. There we are. We're all spiritually blind. I'm sorry I've not got the clicker. We're all spiritually blind and we've got no clickers. <laughs> There's something slightly offensive about saying that, but there's something, I, I want you to think about this because there's also something quite equalizing. One reason people often have an issue with religion is because it divides people into those who can and those who can't. Or it divides people into those who have something and those who don't. It seems like every religion and philosophy is based on whether you can see what you're meant to see or not. So it goes like this, doesn't it? We, we, we can see what we're meant to see. We can see clearly and, and 
what we see, we, we base our lives on that. But these poor people over here, they can't see what we can see. And we go, clever us. Poor them, don't we? That, that's why it's divisive. There's this great divide here. This is how the whole world operates. Clever us, poor them. But in the Gospel of Mark here, all of that is bizarrely, radically turned upside down and on its head. Forgive the pun, but Mark's Gospel is like, we're all in the same boat. Here they are in the boat and Jesus says you have eyes and you can't see. You could, you could imagine Mark saying Jesus' enemies were blind. But what Mark's drawing our attention to here is that his closest friends were blind. Rather than dividing people up into those who can and those who can't, Jesus cuts across our pride and shows us that we're all in the same boat. There's something wonderfully equalizing about this statement. Those who are near and those who are far away, the insider and the outsider, the moral and the immoral, the religious and the secular, we're all spiritually blind. Friends, what this means is that if we can see anything at all, it's because Jesus has touched our eyes and it's not because we're cleverer than someone else. If we can see, it's because we've received a gift, the gift of sight. Our seeing according to Mark's gospel, is a gift and not something that we could ever boast about or feel superior about. I think there's something else here, though, as well. There's something here in the way Jesus does this miracle that says something about how hard it is for our blindness to be cured. Jesus seems to be showing that our spiritual blindness runs so deep that even when we can see, we can't see properly. And isn't this exactly how it is with Peter? He, he kind of can see, but yet not quite clearly. It, it, it's amazing, you know, that when we think about Christianity, we think about someone coming to faith. We talk about conversion. When we think about conversion, we often think about the Apostle Paul being the great paradigm of a conversion. He was going this way, and then he met Christ, and now he's going this way. Damascus Road experience. He was converted. For some people, I, you, you can't say that about Peter. P Peter... It's very hard to say when Peter was converted, became a Christian. For Peter, it seems much more like there's a process and he sort of comes to faith. There is a moment when he moved from death to life. There's a moment where, 
but we, we, don't really, we, we don't have clarity on when that happened. For some people, their conversion experience isn't like Paul. It's more like Peter. He, he seems to see, but not yet fully, clearly. Spiritual blindness runs deep. And I think what Mark wants us to see here is that our blindness, such blindness, Peter's blindness, none of it is insurmountable to Jesus. Let's go on to our second point. Uh, boldness. Boldness. Mark here contrasts the slowness and the blindness of the disciples with the breathtaking boldness of Jesus. Let's build this up. Jesus initially takes his um, disciples 25 miles to the north from Bethsaida to a place called Caesarea Philippi. I wish we had time to dwell on the significance of that. But they're, they're, they're going away from the main crowds. There's still people here, but they're going away from the main crowds in Galilee. It's almost like they've gone on a little holiday. <laughs> Jesus is wanting to talk with them, to teach them. And on the way, Mark tells us that he asks them a great question. Who do people say I am? It's a great question, Mark. Who, you, you've got your ear to the ground. What's the word on the street? Who do people say I am? The question that Jesus asked seems to assume that the things Jesus has been doing deserve some kind of reaction and attention. And so the disciples answer by regurgitating popular opinions of the day. Some say you're John the Baptist. He'd actually had his head chopped off. It was King Herod who probably racked with guilt thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. Come back to life. He was terrified. Some people say, Jesus, that you're Elijah. He was an Old Testament prophet. Others still say that you are one of the prophets. These are not trivial answers. This, in the minds of popular culture, puts Jesus in highly esteemed company. This puts Jesus down as one of the greatest teachers in Israel's long and glorious history. One writer I came across, though, said this. These are the half-truths of half-blind men. No one, friend or enemy, can deny that Jesus' teachings are sound, his miracles are good, and his power is great. The blur of half-sight, however, is to say that Jesus is extraordinarily human but not distinctly divine. In other words, to say, like the crowds were saying, that Jesus is merely a great man and not God in the flesh is a form of blindness.
I want to just pause for a moment and just think about that idea of why we don't see Jesus as who he really is. He's a great man, but he's not God. I want to suggest that that blindness is rooted in our desire to rely on ourselves. If Jesus is merely a great human, even an extraordinary human, we can admire him, assess him, analyze him. We can have an opinion about him, but he's always going to remain at a distance as a figure who is interesting. But Jesus is so different to other religious figures. There's all kinds of religious figures in history and they tend to point us toward their conception of God. And we like them because they leave us in charge. Every other religious figure is basically helping us to save ourselves. And that feels good to us. But Jesus hasn't come to help us save ourselves. He's actually come to do the saving himself. He hasn't come to point us to God. He is God come to us. He's not showing us the path to follow. He is the path. I think the reason we are blind to his true nature is because we deeply love the idea that we can do things successfully on our own. But Jesus then goes deeper with his disciples, having asked them what other people think. Jesus then swings the spotlight and shines it right in their eyes. Mark says that Jesus said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? We've said this is a central question of the whole gospel. It's the most important question you could ever be asked. It's the most important question you could even think about. We're right at the top of the roller coaster here. Jesus has not rushed this moment. He's led them carefully and expertly to this point. And we're holding our breath. Who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up on behalf of all the others. You are the Christ the Messiah. You are the one, God's chosen king, the king over all other kings. Peter confesses the true identity of Jesus. This is the first time the word Messiah or Christ has been mentioned since verse 1 of chapter 1. This is not a whodunit because Mark tells us at the beginning who Jesus is, but as we see the roller coaster going up, we get to the top and this is the first time Someone answers the question, who is he? You're the Christ. But there's a dramatic change of tone. The roller coaster is on the precipice. And Jesus, for the first time, begins to tell them why he has come. In verse 31, 
Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this. I've used the word boldness very deliberately here for several reasons. First of all, when Mark says in verse 32, Jesus spoke plainly, that's a word that you could translate boldly or confidently or straightforwardly. That's the sense of the word. Jesus is coming straight to the point. Plain as day. Jesus spoke about this to them in straightforward, confident language. I, I almost, Jesus is not confused here. He isn't coughing and spluttering and hesitating and dithering. He spoke plainly. He knows who he is, where he's going. It's as clear as day to Jesus. And it's almost as if this energizes him. You can almost feel the energy. This little conversation on the road, they're away from the crowds. Guys, gather around. Now that you know who I am, let me explain what I'm about to do. You can almost feel Jesus's confidence and clarity and energy he spoke plainly about this secondly Jesus is obviously aware of the growing opposition and he's not the first guy in history who's faced opposition and you could hear his words and think that he's predicting his death as some kind of martyr you, 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 could, you could hear this as depressed language. We're going to Jerusalem and he's preparing them for the inevitable. I'm going to die there. They're going to kill me. But it's that little phrase at the end that Jesus says that marks him apart from every other depressed martyr. He must be killed and after three days rise again they almost don't notice that at this point they remember it later this is confident language we're going to Jerusalem I'm going to be killed rejected and after three days rise again there's a clear determination here to face the cross but for Jesus he's not depressed here thinking that and it's going to be the end <laughs> he sees beyond the end through the cross to the resurrection. Thirdly, even though Peter tries to take him on one side to rebuke him, and the word is strong, Jesus, it, Peter basically tries, Jesus, just come over here a minute, and Peter tries to tell Jesus off. And even in the face of that, Jesus isn't distracted or put off his stride. He's not hazy on the details. This really matters. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, I don't think, I don't think Peter here is possessed by the devil and foaming at the mouth. He, I think what Jesus is seeing here is the temptation to not go to the cross. Do you remember when we were in chapter 1? Right at the beginning, 
eight weeks ago and Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan and he hears his father. Who is is he? This is my beloved son. He's affirmed. And what happens next? He's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil says to him, if you are the son of God. The great affirmation is followed by a great temptation. The same thing happens here. This time it's not his father affirming him. Peter gets it. You're the Messiah. And then Jesus hears the subtle temptation to change course, to bypass the cross. The problem here is that people's conception of the Messiah was very different to Jesus's. The perception of what the Messiah would be and do rooted in the Old Testament prophets was the Messiah would be a great conquering king, a warrior who would come conquering their enemies to sit on a throne, usher in a new era of peace and glory, sweeping all before him. Here's the key phrase from verse 31. We'll see it. Jesus began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things. That little phrase, the Son of Man, isn't just a weird way of Jesus referring to his humanity. That phrase actually is a messianic title. We don't have to turn to it, but it appears in Daniel chapter 7, centuries before Jesus was born. This is what it says in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel sees a vision of empires rising and falling. And then he says, there there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the language of victory. It speaks of the Son of Man conquering all nations. Bringing in peace and security for God's people. He's a figure of power and glory and might. He would be worshipped and his kingdom would be an enduring kingdom. That's the kind of thing Peter has in his mind. He is expecting all of that to be on display. He gets the power and the authority and the kingliness. It's not surprising that Peter, in a sense, rebukes Jesus. There are many other prophecies in the Old Testament that refer to figures who are suffering. But no one, before Jesus says this, had put those two things together. 
the mighty, glorious Son of Man must suffer many things. No one had put those two things in the same sentence. Jesus tells them, we're going to Jerusalem. But there won't be a throne waiting there. There'll be a cross. He, he hasn't come to gain power, but to give it away. No one had ever conceived of a conquering king who could possibly win by losing. And notice too that Jesus doesn't see this as a failure. He sees it as a deliberate strategy and a divine necessity. That little word in the middle, must. Jesus says it twice. The Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man must be killed. Peter's brain's melting here. <laughs> it's yours. But Jesus, I thought, why? Why? There's a number of theories of, of why Jesus had to go to the cross. A great, this is why we've called this series The King and His Cross. I've been helped uh, here by Tim Keller, and Tim Keller's not the first person to identify these three key ideas. But let, let me just briefly touch on these. First of all, Jesus exposes and conquers the broken power structures of this world. It's very significant what Jesus says here. Jesus didn't jump off a cliff or commit suicide in some way. It says here, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. Jesus here tells his disciples that he'll be rejected by the religious establishment and killed by the state. Religion and politics colluding to do away with them. Jesus dies as a victim of injustice. I came across Ron Writer who points out the significance of this. The prediction of Jesus' passion conceals a great irony. For the suffering and death of the Son of Man will not come as we would expect at the hands of godless and wicked people. The suffering of the Son of Man comes rather at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. It is not humanity at its worst that will crucify him but this is humanity at its absolute best what the death of Jesus shows is that the systems of this world are so often corrupt power serving exploitative and it seems like the cross of Jesus reveals the vanity and the spiritual bankruptcy of this world's power structures. It's as if Jesus submits himself to this world as it is, 
And yet, that's not the end of the story, is it? Jesus kind of, he, he, he could have gone and blown them away. Sorry, I didn't, that's really loud, isn't it? He, he could have breathed on them and they would have melted. But he submits himself to this world as it really is. And he breaks the spell. There's a wonderful reference to this in Colossians where Paul says that having disarmed the powers and authorities of this world, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He is the king that doesn't fight like the world fights. He wins by losing. He submits and yet that's not the end of the story. He exposes and conquers this world. This world now can't throw anything at a believer in the Lord Jesus that can ultimately ruin them. He's conquered it. Secondly, quickly, Jesus displays and gives the unconditional love that we all long for. I think everyone can tell the difference between real love and fake love. And the problem with fake love, of course, is that we, the person is really loving the other person for what they can get. You know, I, I love you, but really they, they're manipulating to get something. True love really is always about the happiness and well-being of the other. It's not selfish, it's generous. But our problem is that we, we need this kind of love and desperately want this kind of no-strings-attached love. We want people to love us because of who we are, not for what they can get out of us. We so desperately want it, but we so desperately struggle to give it, don't we? One writer says what we really need is someone who can actually get the ball rolling. <laughs> someone who really does love us with a pure and true, not fake, manipulative love. Jesus, who already has everything he needs, he doesn't need us to prop him up. He has all the affirmation and approval he needs. He doesn't love us because he's trying to manipulate us. He is the only one who loves us freely, unconditionally. He's the only one who is truly free to work unselfishly for the joy of others. No other religion teaches that. That God becomes vulnerable. That God himself suffers, serves, dies, lays down his life, gives himself non-manipulatively, no strings attached. Thirdly, Jesus goes to the cross to atone for and to take away our guilt and sin. 
That little word must is so crucial. Our problem ultimately is that our sin, our selfishness deserves God's wrath and punishment. And the reason the king goes to the cross is to stand in our shoes and for the punishment that we deserve to fall on him so that we could be forgiven. And let me be clear on this. It isn't that God the Father is angry and Jesus is trying to persuade him to be nice. The truth is that the Father sent his beloved Son. This is a plan that they colluded in together lovingly. The Father sent his Son to be the Savior because the Father loves sinners like us. And the reality is that God has dealt with our sin and guilt within himself. The Father punishes sin and the Son takes that punishment in our place. Together they found a way for our sin to be atoned for and taken away. Can you see something of the boldness of Jesus? His energy and joy and determination. Christ comes to conquer this brutal world, to soften and melt our hard hearts and to take away our sin and make us clean. Let me just close with one final thought. I don't know why, but this week... I was just thinking about the subject of triggers. In, in, our, in the media, there's a lot of talk about people being triggered. Do you, do you know this word? Being, tr- you know, being triggered. We live in a culture now where things will trigger people. People get offended by something and it triggers their rage. It's almost as if there's a seething discontent, latent anger lurking under the surface, under the skin, and it doesn't take much to trigger it (laughs) and unleash the venomous power of rage. And it all comes pouring out. I don't know why I was thinking about that this week, but it strikes me here how utterly brilliant Jesus is. You can trigger him. But he is not a seething mass of discontent. Jesus is this immense, vast, infinite ocean of unselfish love and compassion. When you prick him, love comes gushing out of every orifice. You can trigger him. And love comes pouring out of him. One lady just touched the hem of his coat. She didn't even prick him. And love came pouring out of him. Who can you think of in the Gospels who went to Jesus and didn't experience this? Jesus, at the beginning of this story, the first scene, 
he asked that blind man, do you see anything? And it strikes me that he could have said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, thanks. I'm fine, thanks a lot, I can see. Hopefully he didn't have a chainsaw. But he didn't pretend, did he? He just told Jesus the truth. Jesus, I can see. But then again, he just told Jesus the truth. I I want to encourage you to go to Jesus and tell him the truth. Do you see anything? Do you see? I want to encourage you to go to Jesus like so many other people have. You have nothing to prove to him. You don't have to rely on your own efforts to earn him. You can trigger his immense love by going to him. Stop trying to do everything yourself in your own way and trust him. Trigger his love. I just, I, today I just wanted to contrast the blindness that we all suffer from with the sheer boldness of Jesus. May in your heart and mind those two things be connected. May he heal our blindness and help us to see the Savior who is full of love for us. Amen. We're going to sing that song, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Um, Let's bow for a moment's prayer as the band comes up. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gospel. Thank you for this roller coaster ride. Thank you that we've been climbing. We've seen something of Jesus' power and authority. But how we thank you for that plunge into the depths. The King who went to the cross. Father, would you open our eyes by your Spirit? Would you help us to see what is really there? And would you set us free? Set us free from ourselves to pour out our lives for him and for one another. We pray in his name. Amen.